2: Welcome to the Habitat
1: Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host,
3: Jared Van Hees. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and this is the podcast for becoming better habitat managers. Guys, as you hear me say all the time, thank you so much for tuning back into the podcast. We couldn't do it without you, and we just want to let you guys know that you're the reason we do this. We are just like you guys, normal, everyday, hardworking guys who get out there and and try to make the best of their land. So keep following along, keep supporting us, and uh, we'll keep providing great content for you guys. Thanks again for tuning in. Now we have a special episode today, guys. Aaron Warbritton from The Hunting Public joined us. So if you guys have YouTube or Facebook, you've probably stumbled across the hunting public. A great group of guys we met and uh, you know definitely follow along with. They are also normal guys like you and me. And they get out there and they get after these white tails. And we're talking all over the country. So we thought we'd get Aaron on, pick his brain, or the habitat side too. So we're all hunters, but at the same time, I want to know what he sees in habitat when scouting, when hunting, and how we can all take that information, relate it to our upcoming fall, which may have started for some of you guys up in North Dakota. We're still about three weeks out here in Michigan, and uh, you know it's coming real soon though. So I want to make sure we get him on and help you guys learn something, because we learned a bunch from this podcast. A couple of things we like to cover in this episode: we talk about habitat diversity, uh, what Aaron's looking for when he's scouting, the things that pop up uh, that make him successful when he's looking for spots to hunt. We talk about cattails and hunting islands in the marsh. We talk about pine stands and pine bedding down in the south. Uh, we use that for an example throughout the podcast as uh, one of our one of our things we talk about: uh, stem count diversity. You know, the, the amount of stems or woody browse or growth you see in a certain area and the density, you know, how thick is the cover? Um, we also talk about habitat edge, where a bunch of habitat edges maybe converge can be a good spot to set up and scout. And then we also get into uh, a story about how Aaron was able to hunt this great buck on his family Missouri farm based on the food plots he planted, the scouting he did the pressure, and when and where he went into to hunt. Uh, it's just an all-around great podcast, guys. We had a lot of fun with this one. Uh, Aaron's a great guy, and uh, look forward to, to letting you guys listen to this here. Now, before we get into that, I do want to give you guys a couple updates. We are back pumping out videos on our YouTube channel. Uh, we put up about four more this week, along with a property tour series. So Brian went and toured uh, our buddy Al's farm in southeast Ohio, was able to put a video together, and we have some knowledgeable information on there for you guys. Check out Habitat Podcast on YouTube. We also have some farm updates about how Brian's farm and my farm looks on there. We're going to keep pumping those out, along with some hunting updates throughout the season. We're kicking around an idea of maybe uh, trying to follow along with us, uh, you know, throughout this fall. Brian's going to be hunting in Montana, Ohio, Pennsylvania. I'm going to be Michigan, Iowa, possibly Ohio. Al's jumping around a bunch too, so we want to maybe put that together too. Let us know your thoughts on that uh, if you can. And then I want to thank our sponsors. We have HuntWise Hunting App, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Dip That Hydrographics, and Packer Max Cultipackers. And, guys, lastly, before we get into the Hunting Public Aaron Warbritton podcast, I just wanted to thank you guys for the iTunes reviews you're leaving. I'm going to keep sending out these details. I'm trying to find the people that are leaving these, and I'm stripping these details out. The last couple of reviews uh, have been just amazing. I mean, really just make me feel really, really good and proud and happy, and just I'm so glad that you guys are enjoying this stuff as much as we are. Uh, the user who goes by Joe Mama 34 wrote the following. I have 13 outdoor whitetail hunting-related podcasts. This one is hands-down the best, and not because it isn't in good company. There are some other great podcasts out there, but they collect dust in my queue because I am listening or re-listening to this one. I own 23 acres and live on it. When I listen to you guys, it's like listening to myself, although I concede you have more knowledge. When an expert speaker says something interesting, and I think of a question... You guys ask it. When I think about equipment or small acreage limitations, you guys say it. As a relatively new hunter, I'm 38. I started at 31. I more than appreciate the podcast. Keep up the good work. Joe, that means a lot, man. We really are doing this to learn for us and for you guys. Uh, We're we're normal people just like everybody else. and, And I feel like for what we've gotten through in the past 55 episodes, I've learned a ton. So I hope you guys do too. I appreciate the reviews, Brian does too, and we're going to uh, keep going. So thank you once again for the great reviews, guys. Go ahead on iTunes, look up Habitat Podcast, write us a review, and I'll find you and ship you a brand new 5-inch HP decal. So without further ado, I know you guys are excited to listen to Aaron Warburton from The Hunting Public. Let's get him on. Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of the Habitat Podcast. We have Aaron Warburton on the line. How you doing tonight, Aaron?
1: Doing good, guys.
3: Good, man. Thanks for joining us tonight. Brian, you still there, buddy? I'm here. Ready to rock. Rock and roll. Well, Aaron, we've uh, been wanting to get you on for a while now since we met at the, the trade show earlier this year. Um, what have you been up to since then, man?
4: Oh been traveling all over the place all spring turkey hunting and we were gone there on the road pretty much about two, two and a half months and now we're back in the office trying to play catch up and get ready for the fall deer season
3: yes sir aren't we all how was your turkey season i think i i may have known from following along but how'd it go for you
2: oh it was pretty good we got to
4: see some cool new places and hunt with a lot of friends and family and stuff and yeah hard to date springtime
3: yes sir yes sir well we wanted to uh get you on here tonight we talk a lot about managing habitat or what certain types of habitats out there on the lands that we hunt and scout and uh wanted to start off here i'd like to hear about who the the guest is where you're from now, what do you do for a living, your your background? You mind diving into that for us? Yeah, sure. I'm from, originally from
4: northeast Missouri, a uh, town called Paris, and uh, most of my family is from that same general area in northern Missouri. I grew up hunting and fishing from a very, very young age. It's kind of been a tradition in, in both sides of my family, so... It was not hard to get out in the woods when I was little. I had lots and lots of mentors from my uncles to my dad to my cousins and other friends and so on and so forth that I hunted with and learned a ton about it when I was, when I was a kid. And, uh, yeah, pretty much when I got up to be around 10, 11 years old, I started watching hunting movies on VHS and decided that was what I wanted to do and just kind of started working towards it every year until I began doing doing it for a living in a certain sense when I was in my uh, early twenties. So I was always always intrigued with filming hunts and learning as much as we could about hunting and and trying to help people.
3: So now do you remember what one of your first couple I'm guessing VHS do your hunting videos were way back in the day?
4: Oh yeah, I've probably still got the tape running around somewhere. <laughs> but oh yeah, we used to pack around. We saved saved up money after after balling and ruining my aunt's camera a bunch of different times. <laughs> we uh, eventually got a got a more professional camera. Me and my cousin did and just experimented with it, filmed a bunch of turkeys. Um, getting shot in the spring and then tried really hard for several years to get a whitetail hunt on film and eventually did but it was certainly difficult however I mean that was when I was like 14, 15, 16 years old and yeah, that was a great, great learning experience at the time
3: How many years did it take you to finally get that first whitetail kill on film?
2: Oh um, I'm trying to think,
3: man. It took me I mean, three, so well, I'm curious what, and it, it, it takes a while to get it probably, all to come together.
4: Probably four or five. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and there was lots of, you know, near misses and oh, that yeah. sort of thing. Perfect. But we were trying to film in, trying to learn how to hunt at the same time, too, you know. <laughs> so it was, it was uh, a lot. Just the circuits pretty well every time you went out. But a lot of fun, a lot of good memories.
1: So when did you
4: uh, transfer
1: that into what would now become the Hunting Public? What what direction did you – can you remember, you know, what point you thought that you want to take this somewhere further and and start doing it for an audience?
4: Yeah, I mean, I always – it was pretty much the only thing that I was interested in. I mean, I've been interested in sports and things like that, but hunting was always kind of at the peak, you know, as far as my, my passions went. And, uh, I just worked slowly towards a, some sort of a career in that industry. And it just made sense because I'd been filming and editing videos all those years that I would pursue something in the video production side. So, I mean, in to be honest, what the hunting public is now is what what I've always been, what the other guys that own it with me have always been. We're just average guys that, that seriously love to hunt. Like, we say that a lot. We're like, there's probably guys that are better hunters out there, there's better shots, but there's very few people that, you know, love it as much as we do. It really is our lifestyle, and it always has been since I was a kid, like I mentioned. So... It was kind of a natural fit as, as I began working for different businesses in my twenties, you know, on the video production side, I kind of always wanted to, you know, create some sort of a hunting brand or, or video series surrounding your, your basically your average Joe, your regular guy hunting. Right. And that's sort of how the hunting public came about. So yeah, well, just my my vision. You know, the the guys that I'm working with now, we all just sort of aligned well from the beginning, and it was all something that we could identify with. Sure. So,
1: yeah, it's interesting that you talk about just being regular guys, and that really comes across in your videos. And I think that's why you guys have gained such a great following because you're doing what everybody out there can do. It's it's you know. Anybody can pick up uh, one of your shows off of YouTube, and, yeah, especially the one, I love the one where you guys go to Walmart and buy a compound bow and get everything set up and get hunting in just one episode. I mean, anybody can do that. So I think you guys are really making a connection there, and that's great to see you. I appreciate it for sure. Thanks. So tell us about uh, your family farm in Missouri that you grew up hunting on. I, I saw you mention that in a few episodes, and I've seen you even gone back and hunted there a few times. What was it like growing up hunting there?
4: Well, that's actually that's the place where I tracked my first deer with my dad when I was probably four or five years old. I mean, I can barely remember it. Um, It's the place where I heard my first turkey gobble. It's the place where I you know, saw my first deer in the woods, saw my first rub, deer track. I mean, not only is it the place where I, where I harvested my first turkey and I harvested my first deer, but all of those experiences, you know, that you right. remember when you were a kid, that, that was all there on that farm. Um, and at the time we weren't living up here. We, my dad had a job closer to St. Louis when I was a little kid as an engineer and we would drive up on the weekends and just stay at my grandpa's house. But the farm itself, my grandpa wore Britain bought in the late seventies and uh, yeah, pretty much just bought it as a, as a financial investment and as, and as an investment for his kids. You know, my dad has got three brothers as well.
2: Okay.
4: And uh, you know, at the time they were growing up, And and some of them were interested in the outdoors, so my grandpa decided to buy that farm. And ever since then, it's been in our family. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we not only hunted ourselves, but we let lots of uh, local folks fish in our lake and hunt at different times of the season, you know, on our property. Uh, My grandpa was the, the town doctor there in Paris, and a lot of people knew him real well for many years, I mean, he was a doctor there for, oh, I don't know, long before I was born when he he was, he came to Paris and took that job, but Paris is a small town, like, he was pretty much the only doctor there, (laughs) you know, a thousand people in in Paris and the surrounding community, so everybody knows everybody, and yeah, that farm is pretty well, everybody in the community knows right where it is and has either
3: hunted on it or fished on it at some point or another. Oh, that's pretty neat. I wish I could say the same. Uh, we have that type of stuff up around me right now, but it's really, I ain't commercialized a lot and don't get a ton of family farms like that, at least where everybody kind of knows each other up by me anymore. So it's cool to hear, man.
4: Yeah, I'm very thankful that he bought that. <laughs> You know, had that's like I said, I had a lot of good experiences there over the years, and you know, I love
3: going back there and hunting whenever I can. So, we're you know we're all we talk about is all this habitat stuff all the time now. So I I gotta ask, what's the farm like? I mean, is it a big square? Is it a lot of ag? I mean, what's on the farm? What's it like?
4: Basically, a pretty even square, um, and there's no ag on it at all. Our lake is probably three acres in size. It's right up there by where the house is on the west end of the property. And a gravel road borders it on the north and west side. Um, And it's it's basically just a square with a couple of creeks running through it. Uh, A bigger block of timber on one side that's about 30 acres of timber. And then I would say it's Sixty acres of pasture ground. Okay, and then some some mixed timber right there below the house. It's just kind of thick and nasty. The borders a creek that separates the two pastures.
3: Now, is that area? What's the if you zoomed out, you know, a couple miles? What's the area like in general? Is it more wooded, more ag, kind of a mix of both prairie land?
4: Well, the the majority of the counties that I'm from are are ag land. Okay. And it's actually fairly flat ag land. I mean, growing up, I hunted, you know, in my teenage years, I hunted a lot of ag farms where there were just fence rows and waterways and, you know, I mean, little pockets of timber and little woodlots and stuff. But our town, right there on the west side of Paris, is kind of a unique little area. And it's only, you know, about... 15 miles square, but there's, there's actually quite a bit of timber in there and a little bit of rolling hills,
2: hmm.
4: and it's just right there in that pocket, you know, and like I said, a lot of the other portions of the county are flat ag land, but right there in and around the farm, you know, it's about a 600-acre block of what I would call timber with just mixed CRP fields in and around it with some creeks running through it. And quite a bit of it is mature timber, but there's there is some diversity in there, and obviously some good edge habitat with CRP and feeders mixed in and whatnot. But it's a right there at the farm. It's a it's what I would call bigger woods for our part of the world.
3: Okay, okay, yeah that that CRP sounds nice. I always love I always love that. I mean, deer love that. That's that sounds good. A little bit of topography in there with some timber. That sounds sounds nice, man. I mean, is the deer hunting and turkey hunting always been decent there, or what was it like, you know, when you were growing up compared to now in terms of maybe numbers or or age class?
4: It's kind of fluctuated here and there over the years, especially turkey hunting, but definitely with um, with deer hunting as well. It's not a big buck property, um, you know, and i say that just because – I think we've been hunting it. Our neighbors have been hunting it. That just that six hundred acre square in there, because I mean, we don't even have fences on our on our borders because we've known our neighbors since our neighbors are the same neighbors that we've had since my grandpa bought the place. Wow! Like we know each other extremely well, um, and pretty well across the board, we haven't seen a buck. You know, over Boone and Crockett in there, but maybe one time in my life. Hmm. And and you know, there's there's bucks do get old back there, and they get mature, but um, for the most part, it wouldn't be what I would call a trophy potential type of an area. I mean, we would need to do quite a bit of improvements and change the hunting pressure quite a bit to to get that. But a nice, a real nice three-year-old buck is a is a good darn good buck back there. And they do get older. I mean I found a deer that were that I knew were six, seven, eight years old back there, but for whatever reason, maybe it's the absence of ag you know, they're they're just browsing in C R P and on acorns and stuff. I'm not real sure to be honest, but just haven't really grown huge antler bucks back there.
2: Now, Aaron, you
1: went back there uh, last year tour, Uh, just just this past one you guys did. It was uh, episode 29. Uh, I remember you having a pretty quick and a pretty awesome hunt there. You want to tell us about that hunt?
2: Yeah,
4: I was actually planning on hunting public
2: land
4: uh, (laughs) right up up the road with with the rest of the crew. But they weren't going to get there until, I think, the 29th of October. And i got my work done for the day, and I was already back home. So I was like, I'm not just going to waste an evening. I was either going to go out to public land and scout, or I was just going to go right there at the farm. And I, and I got to messing with something there, it's bad in the yard. And I looked at the time, I'm like, well, crap, I'm not going to have time to run out to public land. So I just threw my stand on, and I went back there on the farm. I knew there was a couple bucks back there, you know, that I would be tickled to shoot, so. Just went back there and basically with the mindset of I was just going to walk the edge of that CRP in up towards where our food plot was and just follow that edge all the way back until I started cutting some scrapes and stuff and then I would either set up there on those scrapes or I would push on into known bedding on past that. And as I got up there, probably 40 yards from where I killed the buck, I started cutting some uh, fresher buck tracks in the food plot up there. And I got right there to that spot. And there's not always a scrape there, but it's, it's pretty regular enough that I definitely wanted to check it out. And I looked at that scrape and it, it had been worked like in the last, within the last day. And it, it was, you know, great big scrape. they have been hitting it several times and there was lots of buck tracks in there. And on a few occasions before, I've seen mature bucks and, and nice bucks using that food plot in the daylight, but they don't typically come out in the, in the main part of it. They would like to stay back in that lane, and there's there's a little bit of bedding right off the side of that thing. And I know Dad had or I, at the time I knew Dad hadn't been in there for a couple months, so the deer hadn't been getting any pressure from our direction anyway i mean my neighbors have been in there hunting some but on their property so i found that big scrape and that fresh sign and it was already running short of time so i just popped up in the closest tree and i said well if one comes that scrape i'll shoot him and if it doesn't then i'll just sit up here and enjoy the night but one happened, walk right in there and walk right through the scrape and i was self-filming and i could get the camera on him and and get it set up, and then get drawn and everything with him in the scrape because he was preoccupied. And that was the only deer that I saw. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Looks
1: like looked like you had to uh, hold that draw for a little bit. That's that's a similar situation I had this past season too.
4: Yeah, I, I was. I'm pretty particular about you know shot selection on him. Right. And with, I just. He was, he was quartering hard to me, and I probably could have blown it through there and it would have been fine, but I just wanted to I, – I knew he was preoccupied with that straight, and if I just waited long enough, he was going to eventually turn and give me a little bit better angle. Sure. It just yeah. took a lot longer than I thought it was going to. <laughs> <laughs> that
1: was a great shot, and congrats on that buck. Yeah. Nice
4: looking. Thanks. That was pretty sick, was it? it was nice to have Dad up there. Um, and my cousin Brandon, you know, me and Brandon have been attached to at the hip since we were born. He's a year older than me, but he he was the one that uh, I was always hunting with. And, I mean, before we could even legally hunt, both of our dads and my and our uncles would come to the house and grab us, and we would go on tracking missions and all kinds of stuff. We'd go out there and help them hang up tree stands and go shed hunting and we'd even go and drive deer to him in gun season, you know, and just when we were todd- Well, I mean, not when we were toddlers, but five, six years old, so, it was cool, it was nice to be home and get to share that experience with
3: them. So, it's all about, yeah, there's just, there's just something about shooting a, a nice shooter buck on, on your own dirt, and. I've only got to experience that once on, on my property. I've only owned it for a couple of years, and, uh, you know, it's just nothing better in the world. And I have one quick uh, gear question. Arrow and broadhead that went through both those shoulders. What were you shooting? The five
4: millimeter full metal jacket with a 125 grain Exodus broadhead. Got it. Very Nice.
2: Okay.
1: Aaron, you uh, mentioned that buck was coming down a path to a food plot, and you showed a little bit of that at the end of that opening there. Is that something you guys have been doing for a while, or is that something new you guys have been doing with food plots there?
2: No, we've been putting
4: one up there for a long time, um, since I was a kid. The first couple years that I hunted the farm with Dad, when I was very young, there was nothing up there. It was just CRP. You know, sweet and crap. But we eventually got my grandpa's old twenty ten tractor fixed and was able to go up there and uh fill it up and I think the first couple of years we planted Milo and there were so many trees around it just that the moisture. You know, and it didn't do real well up there. We experimented with a number of different things. I mean, we planted biologic. I remember and this is, you know, twenty years ago. Okay, so this is, this is when the food plot trees was just starting to come on. So we were seeing all this advertisements for biologic and the the big radishes they grew and everything. We're like, wow, we got to get some of that, you know. So we planted that in there for a few years and didn't have a lot of luck. And I think after about the fifth or sixth year, we started planting winter peas and wheat up there in in what we call the gap, and that is just, you know, your 10-yard wide gap that that buck that you're talking about on that hunt came up. And that's that's just a lane that cuts down through the timber, and there's bedding areas on either side of it, and the deer are way more comfortable coming out in that lane because you can't see them from anywhere. You know, I mean, we put put another half-acre to acre-sized food plot right out there in the opening at the end of the lane, but you can see that from the house. You know, and, and that and that's where we get, you know, turnips or beans or Milo or something to grow better because it's out there in the middle of the field more so right. where it's not having tree roots it's after moisture. But uh back there in that lane we just pretty much plant wheat or some type of clover or winter peas every year. And that's kind of dual purpose. That's in the springtime when that stuff comes back on after winter, the turkeys just love it. And we'll kill a lot of turkeys in that lane. And uh, the deer love it also. I mean, it's it's just an attractive type food plot. And it doesn't grow particularly well in there. But, you know, enough to, to help a little bit. We definitely saw, we, we definitely have had success on it a number of times. You know, shooting deer, shooting bucks and turkeys. So but I wouldn't say that's the I wouldn't say that's the best spot on the farm by any means for shooting a mature buck.
3: Well, before we get to that that best spot, this lane, um, I'm trying to just paint a picture for the listeners here, Now everybody can go check out the um, Hunting Public 29, the Deer Tour episode 29. You'll be able to see. Aaron points it out in there a little bit better. But for us listening now, it's kind of like, how would you explain what that lane is? It's kind of like a spot where they feel secure prior to being out in the open in the food plot. It's closer to bedding, I assume, right? Yep,
4: it is. Think of the lane as kind of like a runway through the timber.
2: <clears throat>
4: they They come out of their bedding areas onto that lane and then they can look all the way down that lane and out into that main field in the main part of the food plot. But so they can see deer. They can walk out of their bedding area where their vision is somewhat obscured, and they can stand in that lane, and they can see a deer from 250 yards away out in the middle of that food plot. So, you know, an hour before dark when there's a doe and two fawns up in the main part of that food plot, even turnips, we can see those deer from the house. There's probably other deer that are down that lane that we cannot see. In many times, they will not come out there in that opening, that that the field, the biggest area of the food plot until after dark. And like I said, the lane's only about 10 yards wide, and it's probably 150 yards long. Okay. But it's just it's just wide enough to get some sunlight to the ground right there. Right to grow something
1: in. Now, you mentioned those bedding areas along the lane. Is that something natural, or is that something yep. that you
4: guys have worked on? No, that's natural, and and they come and go. I mean, there's – there's, I wouldn't call any of them primary bedding areas where deer just use them day after day after day. It's just okay. one of those deals where, I'm you know, they finish. may be there – they may not be there, but if I'm up on that lane and I cut real fresh buck sign like that, it's worth hunting once, like I did last fall, because it's possible that that deer is is fed within a couple hundred yards of that spot.
2: Okay.
1: Now, when you guys put the uh, food plot in, uh, was that lane has that lane always been there, or is that something you guys carved out of there?
4: No, it's always been there.
1: Okay. And did you have a plan or any type of special layout for that food plot, or is it something you just took advantage of? I, I think I remember you mentioning better soils over there somewhere, something like that.
4: Yeah, there's better soil that that's out there in the opening, kind of towards the cap of the ridge, out, out off the end of the lane, you know, and that's the portion that we can see from the house. Okay. <clears throat> so that's the area where we plan a little bit wider. You know, I mean, it's a good half-acre square right there. But then we also sow a couple passes down that lane every year. We just plant different stuff in the lane. And that's all done. I mean, there was no plan, really. It was all just kind of trial and error through the years to see what grew best and to see, you know, what the deer and turkeys liked best. And we just seem to have had the, the best luck with wheat and winter peas in that lane and then planting, at, whether it's beans or uh, milo or turnips, any one of those, or even clover out in the main part of the food plot, all of those that we've had success with up there. Okay. Growing, just as long as we get far enough away from the timber edge. Are
1: you guys doing any other habitat improvements or any other projects on the farm?
4: Yeah, I mean, every once in a while we will burn that TRP. Um, you know, nice. and cut fire breaks in the edge of that those fields, and and do a prescribed fire or some description. But uh, and, and there's a lot of different things we could do with timber stand improvement and that sort of thing that we just haven't done. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that we've done a ton of improvements to it. We've cut uh, invasive saplings out of that CRP quite a bit. You know, to try to make better habitat for, it, like, quail and that sort of thing. And we have had, when I was a kid, there was hardly any quail out there. And for the last five, six years, we've had a pretty good-sized cubby that lives on the property. That's great. But it's pretty minor. I mean, it's pretty minor stuff. Nothing too crazy.
3: Now, you were saying when you were going down that lane, you you cut a fresh track, or I think it was a scrape I, you saw it was worked up. So you figured that because you saw the fresh sign right there that maybe a buck was using one of these uh, satellite beds or, or non-primary beds for, for that time being because it was so current and, and then it's worth hunting once is what you said at that point, right?
4: Yeah, and what I would do from that point forward is if I wouldn't have had any luck on that stick, the very next time that I went back there hunting, whether it was the next day or three days later or whatever, I would go back deeper to the next bedding. Okay. And I would, you know, set up on precious sign leaving that bedding area. But anytime I, like if I'd got up in that lane and I wouldn't have found fresh buck tracks and I wouldn't have found that fresh scrape, which I've done many times when I went up there and not found the sign that I wanted to in and around the lane, and I just blow right through it. And I go past it. And I go to the next bedding area. And I know where most of the bedding areas are back there now. Because I hunt on my, I bow hunt on my neighbors too. You know, I just call them ahead of time and, and ask them. Uh, and it, I mean, they've never told me no, but we call them and we stay in constant contact with them all the time. Just so they know who's, who is where and so on and so forth. But I know where several of the bedding areas are on their properties as well. Because obviously the deer, I mean, we have like 110 acres. They're not just going to live on our farm. I mean, right. We live on all four of our neighbors too.
2: Right.
3: No, it sounds like, you know, you you learned that from just being there for years, hunting it, right? I mean, you've scouted it many times, you've hunted it, and you you cut your teeth there, and you, you kind of know the property like the back of your hand.
4: Yeah, and I still learn a ton about it all the time. I mean, <laughs> you just awesome. can't
3: you can't ever figure these
4: places out. It's no different. Every piece of ground is the same, whether it's public or private. I mean, you got to know where the deer are bedding, where they're living. And in order to do that, you've got to scout it and hunt it and just spend time out there. Try to figure out what's going on. And, and deer don't understand... You know, the difference between public land pressure and private land pressure is the same exact thing. It's human intrusion. You know, so that's what, that's what you're always looking at is like, where do you access the property the most? Where is the most pressure coming from as far as human sense goes? And
3: then you just hunt around that. Now, do you guys even on, on your family farm or any other private farms or even public spots that you guys hunt a good amount, do you have any fixed stands anymore, or are you strictly mobile?
4: I mean, we got we got set stands on the farm there at home just because my family's gun hunts paramount. And uh, during gun season, they just like to set up in those stands, you know. Yep. And... And that we may not hunt them until then. In most cases, there's nobody in that stand for, you know, an entire year. So we still do have lots of that stands. I mean, when I was a kid, I built a lot of the same ones that are there with my dad. kind nice. of a two-by-fours and whatnot, you know, treated lumber when we were when I was a kid and they're all turnbuckled to the trees back there. I mean, we've got half a dozen of them across the farm. But if I'm going in there to kill a buck, I'm going in there with a stand on my back or a saddle or something. Okay.
3: Yeah, that's kind of what I was... I
4: shot that buck this last fall 10 feet from an old tree stand that we killed deer out of before. But, uh, you know, I'm still going in there mobile every time because I didn't know if that spot was going to be, you know, like I said, I didn't know if that scrape was going to be there, if that sign was going to be there walking up the hill. Right. Yeah, and if it would not then I would have certainly needed the mobile gear,
2: to
3: move in further and set up. Yeah, I was just—I mean, that—that that makes perfect sense. You're—you're you're finding the—the the hottest sign. If it's not at your fixed stand from years past, you're gonna—you're gonna move on, which is awesome. I think people need to do more of that. And it's like, I just didn't know if part of the intrusion and pressure side of things for hunting a single property like that, if maybe, you know, Dan and just just quarter it up into quarters or, or eighths or whatever and just hunt a different square every time and keep them guessing, you know what I mean? Do you ever go at it like that to where you just don't want to be pinned down?
4: Yeah, I mean, I do, especially if I don't know the area quite as well. Okay. Basically start at the front and work to the back. Yeah, but on on our particular farm, I pretty much know there's not going to be a buck on, there's not going to be a buck vetted on 85% of it. Right. You know, they're going to be in one of two places, most likely on our farm, and then a couple other places on the neighbors.
3: Got it, got it. Now, kind of shifting gears here, I want to talk about your, your, uh, Property tours that you guys offer as a group um, that, you, that you've been doing but I, I kind of want to skip ahead of that actually We're kind of on this, this scouting thing. Now say it's say it's this fall and you're on a new 40 acre farm in, in Michigan or, or wherever you're at. Um, what sort of is there a common denominator in terms of bedding habitat that you see? in many places you hunt. Maybe it's a certain type of Ruddos or Dogwood or, or Cattail or, or where do you find a lot of the bucks that you're after bed on the different properties you hunt? Maybe it's maybe it's regionalized but I'm just curious.
2: Uh
4: and my experience is always where there's there's no people and where there's a fair amount of habitat diversity. Okay. And that, and I mean, that can change so drastically, even within a property. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, let's just take the farm there that we've been talking about there, that the satellite bedding that this buck came out of is not fit. It's basically a ridge that drops into a little creek down below, and there's one little side of this ridge, the southeast side of the ridge. It has got a little bit higher stem count on the point of it. And it's only about an eighth of an acre in size on the point of this open, you know, mature hardwood ridge. And there's just a, that that high stem count right there where a few trees have fallen over the years or whatever creates a little bit of thicker cover in comparison to the rest of the mature timber around it. And those bucks will get in that stuff and they'll watch down below them you know, on a westerly-type wind or a southerly-type wind down to that creek bottom. And that's where this deer came from. You know, in contrast, you go 300 more yards on the other side where there's cedars and CRP mixed in, and it is a much larger bedding area. I'm talking like five, six acres in size, and there's always bucks bedded in that thing. I mean, it seems like there always is, but I do see him occasionally in that other bedding. You know, it, it's just so different. You're talking on one property, slightly different habitat. One bedding area may hold 10 deer in it, including a big buck. The other bedding area may hold one deer or zero deer. You know, and right. that's the bedding area that this buck came out of that I shot. Um, I, so it's hard for me to put... a to give you a general answer, it's always where there's no human sense and there's some type of habitat diversity there. For example, a lot of people will go down south and they'll look at a sea of pine thickets, you know, with a six-, seven-year-old clear cut, for example, and then there's plenty of pines in there. And the whole thing is just thick as all get out. Like, you can't, you can't be ten feet in that stuff. And people down there think that those bucks just go out and live in the middle of that. And they don't because there's no diversity in the middle of it. Mm. There's just it's just thick pine, you know, just growing up with grass and stuff and they, the deer can barely even get through it at a certain point. They're gonna be on the edges, they're gonna be in a spot where there's a you know, a mature tree standing up out in the middle of it, something. And it could be it could be a hard transition line from one habitat type to the next or it could literally be two oak trees that they didn't cut out in the middle of that clear cut and that's the diversity that the deer is looking for or a tiny pond out in the middle of it I mean you're, t- you're talking about areas that may hold only one deer and areas that may hold multiple deer you know down an edge or something like that but the trick is always looking for some kind of habitat diversity I mean even in cattails Uh, What you hear in calls and the honeybees guys talk about all the time—they're not just going out in the middle of a sea of cattails. There's always a tree out there that the deer is bedded against. There's there's always some kind of mixture of brush or something on the end of those islands. You know, whether it's dogwood or whatever that they're going to be bedded in. There's always some sort of habitat diversity right there where they're where they're laying at. And it's going to change depending on the part of the country that you're in. But that's not to say that it's, that it's difficult to find. Um, you know, you just have to look at the, the habitat types that exist in your area and to start finding spots where they really converge on a small and large scale.
3: I think that was awesome. Well said, dude. That was the, the different the diversity you mentioned, whether it's, even like a a pond or a lone oak in the middle of a a pine clear cut or whatever that's that's awesome that's good stuff there now so so say you have maybe it's the the Minnesota swamp or the the southern pine uh you know after it was cut, they planted them in there where are you where are you starting? you mentioned you know trying to find some edge within something like this and diversity, how would a regular Joe Blow like us go out there and and find that? I know you guys harp on this all the time, but um, this is really good stuff.
4: Yeah, we're just looking at transitions, just (laughs) habitat edge. And that's the first thing that we'll do. It's Like, uh, we'll just, you know, we'll stick with the southern type stuff to start here because it's an easy example. Then you've got Hardwood, uh, a big block of hardwood and a big block of plant pine cutover that's five years old. You basically got some open hardwoods and you got some super thick plant pines. You just walk that transition line where the two of them mix together until you start cutting deer signs. And then start following their trails back into the thick stuff or back into the, the open timber. And you're going to eventually run into bedding. You know, sometimes it'll be within twenty, thirty yards of that transition line, other times it's gonna be much, much further where there's but there's there's always gonna be some type of habitat mixing going on. Right. For example, if you're if you're walking up one of those transition lines and there's a small little drainage coming out of the planted pine where there's just slightly different growth in it. Like there's trees growing up along the edge of that drainage that are you know, a little bit older than the pines, maybe there's a few hardwoods mixed in. Now, I'm talking about a drainage that's, you know, two foot wide. If it's coming out of those planted pines and there's different habitat growing right there, there's probably going to be a deer trail coming out right there. And If you follow it in there, you're going to find deadies. They're going to be right there where that that stuff mixes together. So that's what, that's always what our first step is, is well, I, I guess I should take a step back. Our first step is identifying where the honey pressure is. Like where do the people that hunt the property, public or private, hunt? And how do they access the property? When do they hunt the property? And then we map all that out, and then we go and scout the transitions away from those spots or the transitions that could be observing those spots or the ones that those guys have ignored. You know, if I, if I point to a transition on a map and I'm like, you hunt right here, and they say, yeah, we got three stands over there. We hunt that, that area all the time. Then I'll ask them what they've seen right there in the way of mature buck. And I'll make a note of it. But we're usually then going somewhere else. Because they're already hunting there. Yeah, so you gotta come up with, you gotta get
1: creative with your own access once, once you find some places that are, off the beaten path is what you're saying.
4: Yeah, you got to think of it like um, if you're hunting mature bucks specifically. Um, you got to think that like as soon as you step foot on that property, anywhere that you go, that deer is going to have the potential to eventually figure out where you're at. Right, and maybe not what you're doing necessarily, but he's going to figure out where you're at. You know what, he may come across your scent trail four days later, but they're going to know what that smell is, you know, and they just don't bed where that smell exists. Like, if you have a, a tree stand that looks like it's in a perfect spot right over a nice food plot in the center of the property, if you're up in that food plot checking trail cameras every two weeks, they are not going to bed right next to it. (laughs) They might bed somewhere where they can, where they can observe you walking in there. Right. But they danger ain't just gonna lay there, you know, within a hundred yards after you go in and out, in and out, in and out, and then walk out in front of your tree stand and you shoot them. I mean, I I shouldn't say that they won't because there's certainly exceptions, but it's it's rare. Right. Most of the really big bucks that we harvest anywhere. Are first time fits in some, some place where you're catching them off guard, you're catching them by surprise. You know, you're in an area where there's nobody else. That's the really, really big bucks. Sure. Now, you guys seem to use mostly
1: uh, observation type movements. I don't see you guys using a whole lot of trail cameras. Now, once you find these spots, are you just setting up where you think the best sign is and then try to get eyes on something and then sort of move from there? Or, or how are you going about with uh, observing these areas and trying to key in on where to put your stands?
4: Uh, most of the time we're going in to an area and we've got, you know, a number of bedding locations in mind as we're going in. And if it's in more open-type terrain, if we're dealing with CRP grass or marsh or something like that, or even ag with bedding surrounding it, if we can cover three or four of those bedding areas with our eyes from an observation stand or from an observation point, whatever, then that's what we'll do. We'll just get to the, the best spot where we can get a good vantage on all those different bedding locations and watch them, and then move in from there. Now, if, a, if the cover is thicker where we don't have that advantage, then we got to go in there with stands on our back and just hunt the sign as you're going into the bedding areas. But it's still the same principle applies. Okay. You know, you're, you're still going from bedding A to bedding B to bedding C. And, you know, if we're, if we're getting – and as we're getting closer, we're getting super quiet and we're easing in there, and that's what we're looking for. And it may only be one set of big tracks coming out. There may not be a rub. There may not be a scrape, but if you see a set of big tracks coming in and out, I mean, maybe it's a rub alone. I'm just using examples here right? because the the spectrum is so wide on what you you can come across when you're going in to hunt like that, when you're going in to hunt a bedding area. Like, I mean, I've, I've walked past a set of big tracks that were going in and coming out on the same exact trail that were super fresh. There wasn't another deer track on the trail. And I've walked 30 yards past that point, and I thought, man, maybe I should have just sat at that. And I'm mm. blowing a junk buck out of that bedding area. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, and he was the only
4: deer. That was his track. That was his, the deer that was in there. You know, and if I would have set up on that trail instead of walking an extra thirty yards each, there's a very good chance I would have at least seen. Right. right. You know, so it, it it all it all varies and, and we've definitely made that mistake multiple times where we cross sign that's on the edge of a bedding area and we're like, Yeah, it's not quite that heavy, you know, because we've seen we've we've seen it from both ends of the spectrum where you're hunting bedding area where there's one buck in there and that's the only deer in there. And he's a buck that you want to shoot. And on the flip side, we've hunted bedding areas where there's 15 bucks in one of them. You know, right. and there's just sign everywhere. Every tree's ripped up. You know, and there's tracks on tracks, and it's just a zoo in there. As you can imagine, it <laughs> bucks being in one bedding area. But the thing is, is that it depends on what your what area you're hunting. If you're hunting a low-density area or if you're hunting a specific buck or whatever, Um, all's gonna depend on you know, your setup. But the thing is and I heard Dan Impold say this a number of years ago and the light bulb went off, he he has a lot of those moments where he says something and you're like, Oh Oh, wow. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) But um he said, you know, you gotta you gotta hunt hot sign when hot sign is hot and if you walk past it then you burned it. Mm Mhm. So and it's pretty basic. That's, that's pretty well true. Like if you get to a spot and you walk past that sign and you don't set up on it, then you might as well just go to the next one that you got in mind because you're already leaving your sense there. You can't just go check it out and then go to the next one and then go to the next one and be like, well, I'll just go right back to where I initially started. That does work from time to time, but more often than not, you, you're burning that area when you're going through it. And if you're worried about doing that, then the best thing you can do is stay hunt in there and just set up on the first one, hunt the first from the first day and move to the second one the next day, then move to the third one the next day. And maybe the bedding areas are big enough that you can hunt different exits around them. So maybe you're you're hunting the same bedding area on days two, three, and
3: four, just different exits around the bedding area. that makes sense? Yes, yeah. definitely. Definitely. And yeah, I want to hit something that you mentioned that ha- the same thing happened to me this last year, and I have a question for you on how maybe you would have attacked the situation differently. So I was scouting down the edge of this gigantic cornfield, and there's a woodlot um, downwind to me, and the cornfield is, uh, no, I'm sorry, upwind to me, and the cornfield is uh, downwind to me. So I'm walking this edge, getting back there to, to hang a camera in the middle of the day. And I came across these big tracks coming out into the cornfield and back in. And I walked about five feet by them, and I stopped. and am like, man, that's a really good sign. And Dan and Fault going off in my head, just like you said, you burned it. Um, and I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'll sneak in here then. I'll, I'll see this sign. I'll cut this trail, and I'll go in and see what I come across. And I would tell you what, I walked ten feet into the woods and blew a big chocolate horn 10 pointer. That was about thirty yards off the cornfield. I mean, he had me pegged from when I walked by, first of all, and then I start going in after him, and uh, you know he blew out. Um, now, when you first saw those tracks, would you have just froze, maybe backed up ten feet and climbed the first tree, or would like what would you have done differently there, or is that just kind of a tough one?
4: Well, the first thing you gotta assess where the nearest bedding is, and are those tracks going to or from bedding?
3: Okay. You no, know,
4: uh, and obviously, like I said, as we're getting closer towards the bedding that we've either scouted or the suspected bedding that we're, where we believe them to be, if those tracks are are going in and out of an area of interest like that, then no, we're not going to go past them. If we caught them right there, we're, we may stand in the trail that they're on and mess around right there in that spot, but we're going to make sure we can shoot that spot because that's the last spot we left our scent. Yep. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. If we kept the sign that we're looking for right then and there, we're setting up. And we do we do look around. Don't get me wrong. Like we, It's not one of those deals where you see it and – you know, it's like radioactive or whatever. You turn around <laughs> and back off of
2: it. Yeah, Dude, yeah.
4: You've, got to look or, you've got to look around to, to figure out where your best setup is going to be. But we're always very careful. Like there's two of us, for example, that are usually in the woods together. Somebody's filming and somebody's hunting. And when we get to that point, usually we don't both go to walking around anymore. One of us will stop and the other one will tiptoe around in a circle you know, and just assess the the setup, the sign, you know, the correct tree or the correct bush or whatever it is that we're getting ready to go to get into. Sometimes it's super easy to figure out, and sometimes you gotta get real creative. But the point is, is that you want to shoot that spot where you see those tracks. Got it.
3: Got it. Yeah. If, I uh. If it's on the trail you know, leading in and out of bedding. And apparently that was what that was. <laughs> I I yep. didn't know the betting was that close. Uh, I definitely know now. That's for darn sure. Um, now, if you blow one out like that, are you are you leaving him for how long before you jump back at him? Or are you coming in from the other way? Or what's your next thought? I mean, he didn't blow, but he yeah. kind of trotted away a little bit. And I thought, he got me. But I mean, maybe a week from now, am I good? Or is it just like, move on?
2: It all
4: depends. Okay. All depends on the nature in which that you spook them.
3: You know, okay.
2: <clears throat>
4: it's, most of the time they're coming right back to that same general area, but maybe not the exact bed. Okay. However, that is by no means a rule. We've had them come back to the same exact bed. Okay. The very next day. Um,
3: wow. Bumping dump, huh? Um,
4: yeah, I mean the same bed. We just hunted it from a different side the next day, and it just <laughs> came out the other way. You know, but that that all has to do with how you spook them. You know, when well, we spooked this buck that I'm talking about, he took off out of there and he had no idea what the heck we were. He just heard us walking close to him and took off and he bounded about 40 yards away and then stopped and turned around and we were ducked down in the cover by then. He couldn't tell what we were and he couldn't smell us. But he just eased off out of there. And we didn't see him again that night, but he was right back in there the very next day with our sense in there and everything. Um it you know, it's it's almost kinda like you a lot of times they give you a get out of jail free card. You can go in there and you can figure out what the hell's going on and you can tromp all over it. But it is that it's that consistent intrusion, whatever it is, that they get wise to. Yep. <clears throat> and you gotta think, I mean they're getting They're living their whole life out there. They got stuff that's bugging them. You know, whether it's a cat or a a coyote or a human or whatever. But if there's any level of consistency to that pressure, they're going to leave that spot. They're going to go find a better one somewhere. You know, if they just get surprised like that out of one, they're going to go back a lot of the time. Now, the question is, is how soon and... Yeah, it, it, nobody knows. It's all just kind of a crapshoot. Sometimes they don't come back. Now, if they smell you and they take off out of there like a bat out of hell, they may not come back. Yeah. They may go, I mean, they're not just going to go run to the next county, but they may not be in that exact bed again. They may be in a slightly different bedding area the next time that you go in there to hunt them.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. But I would definitely
3: keep hunting them. Yeah, coming across a, a buck like that in Michigan where where I hunt, then that was. Uh, I went in there about about two weeks later on the next cold front. I gave him a lot of time. I probably should have just jumped on the next day or whatever, but I gave him a lot of time. I went back and looked from a different angle and didn't see him. I uh, saw another nice buck, but there's definitely some something to that. And I like how you guys are super aggressive in that point where. He's here now, so don't wait two weeks, right? So, like, hunt him now. If you blow him out, determine how you blew him out. If he's gone, he's gone. Move on. If not, hunt him again and don't wait for something else to screw up. You know, get in there. I and mean, you guys are always super aggressive, which pays off, I think.
2: Yeah, it's worked, it's
4: worked really well for us, the more... <clears throat> The more we put our foot on the gas, the better, uh, harm, <laughs> you know, we've done and the more big bucks we've seen, but it's, you got to remember too, it, it's always a process. You're, you've got to, you're hunting with a bow a lot of the time and you're trying to kill a, a mature buck. Like a lot of luck has got to go your way <laughs> in order for you to kill one of them. Yes, sir. So you're. You've got to you've got to go in there planning to kill one every time, but what you end up finding is all the intel that you're gathering. You're just building this huge portfolio of information on that particular property, maybe on that particular deer, whatever. Um, That particular situation that day may, you know, you may see that again down the road. It may not be next year, it may not be the year after that, but three years later when the crop rotation comes around and when the acorns are falling just like they were that day, you may encounter the same situation and you may run across a similar sign in that spot. That kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with that buck on dad's farm there back home. Like I said a while ago, there's not always a scrape in that spot. I haven't seen one there for three or four years, but as soon as I saw it, I was like, Last time there was one right here, I had a huge buck come to it, hmm. and I remembered that from four years prior to that. You know, and I messed it up back then. But this time, I got set up in the correct spot, and he happened to come to that straight. Obviously, it doesn't work like that every time, but you're slowly building that information every single time that you go out there, because the white-tail hunting is incredibly situational. Right. It's gonna. It's gonna. Situations are gonna change you know, week to week, year to year on a given property, the more of them that you can put yourself in, the more uh adaptable you'll be when it comes to going in and setting up on time like that.
2: Awesome. Well that's
1: excellent information.
2: Awesome. Appreciate
1: you going going into detail and all that, Aaron. But well, we want to be respectful of your time, so I'm gonna switch gears a little bit here and Wanna hear about the, uh, property visits and property tours you guys have been doing. I checked out the latest videos. Uh, you wanna tell us a little bit about
4: that? Yeah, we do a number of consulting trips every year. I wish we could do more of them. Um, cause they're a lot of fun. And we, we usually just, uh, <clears throat> we get a piece of private land to go on in a particular area we've done one down south we've done them in missouri and iowa minnesota and ohio and i'm probably leaving the state out somewhere too but um they're really fun we sign up about 15 to 25 people to come out and then we we basically just show everybody our process for hunting the new property i mean we do a little bit of map scouting on the, the areas before we get there, but mostly it's all just from the start. That's the way we want it to be. We want people to get there and, and be in the same shoes that we're in. You know, like we just, we just got your boots on the ground and we have no idea what we're dealing with. Like what is, what is the progression that you go through in order to figure this place out? And it usually takes about a day or so. You know, scouting. We'll scout all morning, and we'll scout all afternoon, and folks will have questions throughout the day. It's, it's a good time, though. And we we always focus on new private areas somewhere. That usually is just somebody that volunteers their property. Sure. You know, as as a workshop host.
1: Right. So mainly, you're just you're just going into the scouting and figuring out where you're going to hunt that property. Do you get into any of the habitat advice, any, any type of maybe, you know, they could make a change here, make a change
4: there? We do a little bit, but, you know, we're not biologists or man or land managers or anything. I mean, that's not really where our skill is, uh, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to come across like I'm, you know, just BSing somebody. There There sure. may be some... There may be some improvements that we might suggest, but usually we'll refer them to the land manager of some kind. Right. If that's, what if that's what they're wanting to do. You know. Now, somebody I mean,
1: that's uh, – go ahead. You can finish your thought. We
4: did – I guess we definitely get into habitat types and that sort of thing when we're there. But our focus is, is mostly on the woodsmanship side of it and hunting and identifying the existing bedding areas.
2: Okay.
1: Now, these people that are volunteering their farms, do you have a uh, minimum size or a type that you, that you ha- have to have to put these on?
2: Uh, no,
4: not really. We kind of take each one as its own thing, and we just look for what's going to be the best for us. I mean, we try to find areas that have got plenty of diversity in them, well, we can get into a lot of different hunting situations for the people attending the workshop, and then and then in exchange for them, you know, hosting the property there, um, they pay us a consulting fee to essentially break down their farm from what we learned from it. You know, so we'll we'll map everything out and send back to them and and go through the the process. You know via maps that way because we'll break up into two or three different groups throughout the day just to cover as much as much ground as we can, get into as many different situations as we can and then we'll share everything we learned with like the landowners obviously. Okay. And then everybody that's there.
3: And what time of year are you doing those Aaron? I mean do you have one coming up or are you all done with those from the, the spring scouting or after hunting season or when do you do those?
4: Uh, we're pretty much done right now. We got too many other irons in the fire at the moment. I wish we didn't because those are a lot of fun. We um, the last couple of years we've done them in uh, like January, February, March, and then of course turkey season cranks up and we can't get any of them done until June. <laughs> and this year we we did the one in Minnesota at the beginning of June. So I think we did four or five this year. And
3: that's
2: probably
3: what about what we'll do next year too. Okay. That's probably what we're shooting for. Now, you mentioned some some irons in the fire and you know, what's new with you guys? What's cool and exciting you can you can share with us. Anything cool coming up that we should watch out for?
4: Uh yeah, I mean we're playing in the deer tour and the public challenge right now. Okay. <clears throat> so I'm starting to get into the scheduling of the fall, which is exciting, like, we're going to start in early September, late August, and then run clear through, you know, the end of January. Wow. We're going to be hunting lots of new states. Okay. And we
3: might even be up in Michigan. Yeah, buddy. that so fun. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be a, a good challenge, no doubt. I, I know that, and you guys are always up for a good challenge, though, so...
4: Yeah, I mean like I said, you're just constantly building the
3: you're
4: you're building on everything that you're doing, it's a learning process. You're pulling something from every place that you go. And that's that's what we like the most about what we do. is just getting together with your buddies and trying to figure stuff out in different situations. And it's just like light bulbs going off all the time because you're just constantly challenging yourself with something new. It's a lot of fun.
3: Yeah, I I really enjoy watching them um, as well on your on your YouTube. Now, before we wrap this up, is there anything else that we missed tonight that you want to get into or or anything at all?
4: Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, we've been talking about the habitat quite a bit, and I don't have a ton of great you know experience or feedback from the land management side of things for your listeners, but the one thing that I that I would say is that has benefited me personally, um, has just been figuring out where the buck's bad on your property. As it is. And it's a and remember that it may be a small, small, subtle change like we were talking about earlier. It may be a, a very tiny spot that a mature buck chooses to bed in versus a enormous bedding area. It can change so much. So when you're doing the habitat improvements, try to keep that in mind. They have to have that diversity. So chances are that whatever you have on your property is good habitat, you may just need to tweak something subtly to get it, you know, to, to improve it so to speak from a betting standpoint does that make sense
3: yes, sure? yes it does
4: like you don't. Know, a lot of folks think that they just got to go in and do a complete overhaul and what, what ends up happening is they go in say they have an, a, a farm that's full of open timber well they go in and they TSI the entire thing and now 10 years later it's all thick well all you've done is flipped it over you know, right. all you did was went from open to all thick. Instead of strategically placing little thick spots in that open timber and creating these little pockets of diversity, Right. you've just created, you know, the same monster except on the other side of the spectrum.
3: Very point. interesting point. For sure. I think a lot of our listeners can relate to that. Definitely. I know I can. Well...
4: And right. I've seen that. I've seen that happen some places at times. You know where uh, folks were just and and I did, and I thought it the same way when I was growing up. I'm like, well, a bedding area is just a thick area. You know, where there's nothing a big strategic flat. about yeah. it. Yeah, right. So let's just make as much thick stuff as we can, and then before you know it, the whole thing is thick, and there's not enough diversity in there for deer to mm. bed and live. And that's what they gotta have. They they want to have all those different habitat types mixing together. I like it. Great point.
3: Now one but, more yeah. one more question for you. Um, you hunt out of. I, I always ask this question. It's kind of a a random question, but what's your favorite type of tree to hunt out of?
4: Species. Um. Species of tree.
3: Yeah. Do you have one?
4: I like pines a lot and white oaks.
3: Cover.
2: Yeah. Hmm.
3: Lots lots of cover in the white oaks usually and uh, they hold their leaves and pines are good there. Plus the acorns.
4: Yeah, they got a lot of horizontal limbs and stuff up there to help break up your outline and they're usually straight enough that that you don't have to, you know, go wild to get up in the thing. But, to be honest, the best tree is the one that's located 15 yards from the trail that you're going to shoot the buck on.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
4: it doesn't really matter if the thing is a willow at the size of your calf or if it's a <laughs> oak tree that's five feet wide. You know? <laughs> I mean, if you... And that's another thing. they won't you know, and I won't go too far down the rabbit hole on this one, you're but good. The, I yeah. have seen that, I've seen that happen with folks a lot of times where they were like, well, this tree up here is a really good tree for a sand, and you look at it and you're like, well, where do you see all the bucks and they're like 80 yards that way? I'm like, well, then I wouldn't hunt out of this tree anymore.
2: <laughs>
4: 80 yards that way. Yeah. I don't care what tree is over there. If there's not a tree, then sit on the bucket or <throat> figure something out. Like, you ain't going to be able to move him over here to your favorite tree. But,
3: yeah. (laughs) No doubt. That's kind of a random question, but you'd be surprised. We get a lot of interesting answers out of that and really some eye-opening stuff. So I always like to ask it. (laughs) Yeah,
4: for sure.
1: Well, Aaron, we really appreciate you coming on. We want to give you a chance to let everybody know where they can find you, websites, uh, however else youtube you want to uh, let our listeners know how to get a hold
4: of you yeah no problem guys you can follow all of our stuff at the hunting public twitter facebook instagram youtube and amazon and then uh, the hunting fantastic awesome.
3: awesome well aaron thank you very much again uh Look forward to hopefully seeing you in the show circuit this year and uh, maybe running into you in the woods here uh, up in Michigan. You never know.
4: Sounds good, guys. Thanks for having
3: me. All right, Habitat Podcast number 55 is in the books, guys. Aaron Warbritt from The Humming Public. Thanks for coming on, brother. Really enjoyed the conversation with you, and I know Brian did too. And thank you to the listeners for coming back once again. Always appreciate it. Go ahead and give us a review online if you can. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, habitatpodcast.com. We're finalizing that new website where we'll have hats and shirts and decals available very soon. So hang in there. Check us out online. Send us some cool pictures of your food plots or whatever you're working on these days. I got a cool video of a homemade crimper the other day uh, from a guy named Tommy, so that's pretty cool. I'll share that with the Facebook group here soon. And if you're new to the podcast, you can find us at habitatpodcast.com, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, Anywhere you can find a podcast online, we should be on it. So, if we're not, let us know and we'll get on it. So, guys, thank you very much. Get ready for deer season coming up here. Shoot your bows. Finish up them food plots. Hang those stands. And uh, just, you know, enjoy your farms. I'd like to thank 5-2 Outdoors Killer Food Plots. Packer Max Packers, The Habitat Hook, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, and Dip That Hydrographics for your support in the Habitat Podcast. We couldn't do it without the friendships and, and the partnerships that we've made with you guys, so we thank you for that. Everybody else, be safe, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Habitat Podcast. Take care.